0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric, live online at BlogTalkRadio.com/BCRadio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we plan to talk to Robin Miller, co-author of the Smart Woman's Guide: The Midlife and Beyond, a no-nonsense approach to staying healthy after fifty. And we also hope to chat with Paul Austin, author of Something for the Pain, One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the ER. Today is Wednesday, the 17th of December, and this is a medical edition as well as the Christmas edition of BC Radio Live. Chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. The live video feed is now running. I see Santa on there right now. I am Philip Wynn, important pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined t- tonight by BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Hello, Eric.
2: Philip, hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Yourself?
2: Pretty good. Uh trying to <laughs> walk the line between really immersing myself in the Christmas spirit and yet, you know, got to keep working and doing all that stuff oh, yeah. and... It's really hard to find where that where the right place is, you know, when I'm home. We're definitely we're either running the Christmas music on the on on the system or we're watching one of the TV shows or DVDs and I'm reading a book about the history of snowmen. That's just really interesting. <laughs> it's really interesting and funny. I mean, his writing style is pretty tongue-in-cheek, but you know, it's a it's a serious attempt to understand the, uh, trace the history of snowmen, you know, like when were they first being made, when did they first appear in the media, on, on, on. It's really, it's really pretty interesting. And
1: uh, is, is that an upcoming guest or just a personal interest?
2: Just an interest. I, every season, every ho- every major holiday, I mean, really it's mostly Halloween and Christmas, I suppose. But uh, the others too, if I run across something, I always try to pick up, you know, some books um, each time, and just see, just get a different angle, a different perspective. You know, a lot of times it's art books. I really like to look at the. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Christmas and Halloween are are very visual and have all kinds of you know design and art associated with them. But um, but you know, we I, we go to this. I don't know if you have these down there. It's a chain, but I don't know how big it is. It's called Half Price Books. And oh yeah,
1: you know. Do you know where the uh world headquarters for half price books is? I do not. Not ten miles from my house. Amazing right here in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> As always.
2: Bizarre coincidence, Small World. Yeah, they have I guess one of their more successful stores anywhere is this one that we go to up in uh on the east side of Cleveland, east suburban Cleveland. And it's just it's just cool. the 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 traffic both in you know, in people and in material going through there, it's just Staggering. I mean, you know, it, the the flow. I mean, there's so many. I, I, I'll go there. There'll be times like at the end of the year now where where I'll go in weekly because I you know I trade stuff in. And I do try to keep a copy of most things, but you know I get duplicates and and whatever. So. Anyway, I'm going in there, and I mean it's like it's a whole different store. A week later, I mean you literally see you know different books everywhere, so it's it's staggering. Anyway, of course they have a seasonal you know aisle, a seasonal section, and uh, uh, lots of Christmas stuff. They had more last year, this year fewer selections, but this was this was definitely the prize, and it just came out. It looked like it just came out this year. Uh, history of Snowman. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't recall the author's name. But he's a cartoonist of all things, mm. and so there's a lot of cool art. And, and he's trying to track down when Snowman first appeared in magazines and you know magazine covers and mentions of them. It's it's really interesting, and he's kind of you know he's getting into kind of the the uh, philosophical and the psychological—you know—what does it mean? Why do we do this? Why is it such a universal thing to do to build snowmen? And you know, what are the implications of it and all that? It's it's really really interesting. And if nothing else, the the visuals are terrific. Just seeing all the different kinds of snowmen and going back in time and seeing how the how the figure has changed over time. It's actually uh, gone in cycles where you had the really round kind of frosty then it mutated into a kind of a leaner thing about a hundred years ago and then and then after the appearance of uh of frosty himself first the song and then the cartoon back to the to the round so anyway that's probably way more than anyone wants to know but it's a really good book i i'll uh i actually i can look it up while we're talking and see who the author is
1: it'd be nice to be able to get that author on although i suppose uh this is actually, I mentioned this is our Christmas show, even though it's uh, a week and a day until Christmas, we're not going to be having a show on Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't know if any of you intended to, to dial in and listen, but we don't intend to dial in and speak. So
2: I'm, I'm doubting. Uh, we're,
1: we're, we're taking off Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, and we hope that you will as well, and we'll be back on uh, January 7th
2: yeah and I don't uh, think we're disappointing too many people
1: <laughs> no, I don't imagine so better things to do on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve for us and for everyone else too so uh, but let's, uh, even let's if you're ahead.
2: strictly secular, yes, okay, here it is. I found it yeah, it came out it actually came out October, excuse me thirtieth of o seven um but um uh and then uh let's see well anyway, it's the history of the snowman. And it's by Bob Eckstein or Steen, And a, a kind of a striking red cover with the with the classic, the the almost cliche, the evolution from ape up to mm-hmm. becoming ever more erect man. And the last one's a snowman. It's 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 quite clever, it's funny, it's good. And it's short, you know, it's hundred and sixty some pages.
3: Yeah. So uh
2: I recommend it. Very nice. We should get Um, Bob on the show. That's a good point.
1: Exactly. You've been reading more interesting books than me. I think the latest thing uh, that I'm in the middle of reading is a uh, relatively recent translation from the Italian of Dante's Inferno uh, by Anthony Esalen. Great translation. Great, great translation. A lot of fun to read. I'm going to have to pick up the other two volumes of The Divine Comedy. But, um, yeah, so I I think more people will be interested in The Snowman. However, Anthony Esalen, E-S-O-L-E-N, if you've never read uh, any of uh, Dante's works, then uh, that's the translation to get.
2: Well, that's a little heavier than The History of the Snowman. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I, I'm
1: also quite into uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels, so, you know, high, high recommendation, especially for Volume 6. Boy, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> so that's, there's, there's more light fare.
2: We probably shouldn't neglect our guest any further.
1: No, no, absolutely not. Well, uh, let's let's get started. This is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash Radio, And co-hosting with Eric, I'm Philip. Uh, Doctors Robin Miller and Janet Horn have co-written a book called The Smart Woman's Guide to Midlife and Beyond, A No-Nonsense Approach to Staying Healthy After 50. We've actually previously spoken with Dr. Horn, and tonight we have an opportunity to chat with Dr. Miller as well. Uh, The website for the book is SmartWoman'sHealth.com. Uh, welcome to BC Radio Live, Robin.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: So did hey, Janet talk about us?
3: Uh, no, <laughs> she didn't. But I'm I'm certainly going to tell her all about the Snowman book. <laughs>
2: yeah, you, yeah. I was thinking, hey, we got we got uh, this, this poor this poor serious important doctor woman waiting while I'm jabbering on <laughs> about the uh, the history of the Snowman. Well, uh, I'm
3: thinking you might want to read our book if you uh, haven't already. Uh,
2: Oh well, I have, I have, I, I haven't read it. I haven't read every word, but I did a more serious than usual skimming.
3: Oh, good. I'll have
2: you know. No, yeah, we ta- We had a great conversation not too long ago, maybe a month ago, with uh, Janet. We we you know we ended up spending quite a lot of time going going over the book, and I actually my, I gave it to my wife after that. I didn't know we were going to be speaking to you as well, and. She was offended because she thought I was accusing her of being 50. but uh... <laughs> so that
1: was That was one of the things that we found out, actually, or that I found out. I've, I've not had a chance to read the book. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that we found out, we were a bit nervous uh, You know, having your, your co-author on. Uh, and I think the, the other guest that night was also uh, something having to do with women's health, uh, breast cancer survival or something like that. And we were a bit nervous because here we are, two guys, uh, missing our our usual third uh, third host uh, that night
2: as we are again. She was gone too. Yeah, she was. <laughs> Where she's never around when we need her.
3: Oh, exactly,
2: exactly. Well, you know, but
3: uh. But still, you know, about sixty percent of the book would apply to men too.
2: That's what we found out, and right. we also it's, found out that the age is is it's not irrelevant, but it's it's um it's a relative thing. In other words, right. these are things that apply to people you know, uh, of any age, and the sooner exactly. you begin them, the better.
3: Exactly, and it's always nice to know what's coming.
2: We also learned that uh, Janet had a, has a more sort of traditional medical background and approach to things, and you're, you're like a freak. You're like I the know. witch doctor running I around know. doing weird, crazy stuff. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about that? That's super cool, because I take a bunch of weird stuff. Well,
3: I did a fellowship in integrative medicine with Andrew Weil, And so I take a more integrative approach. And so there's actually, you know, a fair amount of integrative medicine in the book. Um, We talk about some complementary therapies, and uh, we took a little different spin on it, and I talked about what the therapies were and kind of my experience with the therapies. And so, um, you know, I use that in my practice with my patients.
2: Well, and how do they respond to that and how does the medical i it's a lot more mainstream than it used to be are you still considered sort of uh you know left of center or is it or is it really moving pretty close to the center these days
3: um you know i think i still am considered left left of center uh, but the results are so good that it's really made people sit up and take notice and so now i'm actually getting referrals from doctors that you know before I don't think would ever have thought about sending me their patients. So it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And it's so what I usually prescribe to people is so benign as compared to some of the other things that they get prescribed. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's amazing. You know, we help people lose weight. We help people with fibromyalgia not hurt anymore. Um, I've been able to get quite a few patients with chronic pain off their medicines, I mean, it's just an amazing thing because basically all it is is patient-focused care. I mean, I'm really focused on the patient, what will work for them, what they think would work for them, and we come up with a plan for them. And, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty amazing I'm, – I'm very happy practicing this way because I used to be in the more conventional realm also. Um, and I, I wasn't really happy because I never really felt I was giving people what they needed.
2: But now I Why don't I do. you uh, – excuse me, I'm sorry. Why, why don't you – you know go through some examples of that and how that works and how you're approaching things differently now. I'll tell you what just just as a as a prologue there a little bit what what when I realized how much things had changed it just man it was like whoa the light bulb went off. I went to a ear nose and throat guy, totally traditional Cleveland clinic just right down the middle guy and because and, I've had kind of chronic Issues between kind of a, the the border zone between my ears and my sinuses, my ears and my my nose, and it's kind of an ongoing thing. And you know, I used to get a lot of sinus infections. Kind of learned how to how to not get those, but still, some of the underlying issues seem to always be there. So I, I go and we're talking, and he's looking at me and he's examining. We're doing this, we're doing that. And he's asking if I tried this and that, and the kind of everything he mentioned, I'd already done, mm-hmm. um, and it was all pretty traditional stuff. And, and then he said, um, "Well, you know, do you use? Uh, have you tried any homeopathic stuff?" And I said, uh, "Well, yeah, on and off, I, I did go to a a, a guy who's actually a chiropractor who who was also <laughs> pushing homeopathic remedies." And and uh, so he said, "Well, I'll tell you what, we have no idea how that stuff works, but every time I get a cold, you know, I take right. the uh, the Zicam." And don't know how it works, don't know why it works, but it works, and that's what I recommend to people It's completely out of out of my range i you know as far as i I, I could be recommending anything it's just it's purely anecdotal be said it works every single time it has never failed me and and there you go, and I realized, yeah. wow, things have really changed Yep. Yeah.
3: yeah well, you know, for example, you know someone who comes in with fibromyalgia, I see quite a few of those patients. Um, you know, we'll, I'll do a pretty extensive history and physical, and then I'll check and make sure their vitamin D levels are okay, their B12 levels are okay, their thyroid's okay, as well as some other labs. And usually they're low in vitamin D. And when you give people vitamin D who are low in it, their muscle pain gets better, their balance get, gets better, their energy level gets better. It's pretty amazing. Same thing with thyroid. You know, if someone's hypothyroid, which quite a few women are, especially at approaching menopause, that makes a difference as well. And then, you know, I'll use um, acupuncture, massage, and then there's some herbal things that I use or supplements. There's one called Corvalin that, um that is amazing. It's D-ribose. It's a simple sugar, but it works, and people notice their muscle pain gets better, and they're a lot happier and more functional, and it's really pretty amazing. Um, I also use a lot of nutrition because... You know, I find that most people um, who are hurting or in chronic pain or who have problems in general aren't eating very well. So if we can somehow guide them to eating better, it makes a huge difference.
2: So in terms of eating better, are you talking about just in general or, or specific eating um, specific foods towards specific issues? Well, yeah.
3: Specific foods towards different issues in that um, there are certain diets that people eat that just cause inflammation. you know, the high carbs, the sugar, the processed foods those things just cause it set up the body to be inflamed. But the Mediterranean diet is an anti-inflammatory diet. It's got healthy proteins, good healthy oils, fruits, vegetables, whole foods. That actually reduces inflammation, and you can find that people who have inflammatory illnesses, like rheumatoid arthritis, actually feel better. And that um, people who, you know, have fibromyalgia actually feel better, even though it's not an inflammatory process. And people who have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, you know, remarkably, when they're on the Mediterranean diet, everything gets better. Their blood pressure goes down, their cholesterol goes down, Um, even, you know, their blood sugars get better if they're diabetic. It's amazing,
2: that is amazing. Um, exercise
3: I, also helps. <laughs>
2: how do you define the Mediterranean diet? Just for those. Um, well,
3: it's whole foods, uh, vegetables, uh, olive oil, um, grains, whole grains. Um, there's a great book called The Omega Diet. Um, it's written by by a Greek physician. It's fantastic. They have lots of good hints and and recipes in there. What
2: the are Omega your thoughts? Diet. I'm sorry. What are your thoughts on on um, on on getting nutrients or getting um, I guess ultimately we're talking about chemicals in in food form or in pill form. In other words, for example, there are supposed to be all kinds of benefits to garlic. Well, I just can't handle garlic. Garlic does not agree with me. It keeps me up. It makes me ill. Uh, it just to my stomach. Just ugh. but But um, I found that I can take it in capsule form. So that's then just-
3: that's fine. Um, But I I actually, you know, urge people to get their nutrients from food, but if you can't, then it's okay to take a supplement. Just make sure the supplement is actually dissolving in your GI tract because a lot of them don't. (laughs) And so you're just paying a lot of money and nothing's happening because it's coming right out in the same way it went in. So make sure that the supplements you get are either in gel form or that they dissolve.
2: Well, yeah, that would make sense.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a guy who cleans septic tanks around where I live and one day a septic tank kind of blew all over somebody's lawn, and what he found were just tons of pills. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to make sure that what you're taking is actually getting into
2: you. That is important, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they say, you know, a lot of the more expensive, like some of these are programs you get into and whatnot, the more expensive, uh, you know, supplement uh, companies or, or lines – claim that you know kind of just what you said is it is it a function of what should people be looking for in terms of making sure that it is dissolving and that they are getting what they think they're getting
3: well they can you know get it in the form of a gel cap or a powder or um they can see if they dissolve in warm water that'll give you a hint Uh and if they don't then you know it's probably not and then you actually can look and see what comes out
2: you one could do that Yes. (laughs) Like with the, way. you know, like after the dog eats your wedding ring, or
1: maybe that, maybe that's the reason this is aimed at uh, women over fifty. I, I, I think in my thirties, I'm, I'm not awfully eager to go examine that. that.
3: <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> maybe it'll be more important to me later. <laughs> but in, ter- in, in terms of supplements that you may not be able to get in your food, um, certain things are hard to get in a diet. So. Um, vitamin d is one of those Um, you you should be getting vitamin d from the sun but as we get older most of us don't absorb it as well through our skin or we use sunscreen so it doesn't get in and so that's the kind of thing that you probably need a supplement for but i always urge people to get their vitamin d level checked before they start taking supplements because some people actually need a fair amount Um, and it's amazing if you're vitamin d deficient and start taking it how much better you feel and I know that because it happened to me. I was checking everyone else's vitamin D levels and finally checked mine, and I was the lowest of everybody. And wow. Janet had the same experience. And so once we started supplementing with it, we both felt so much better. It was amazing.
2: What are the symptoms?
3: Uh, fatigue, muscle aches, loss of balance. My balance was terrible. I could not Ooh. balance on one foot.
2: That is disconcerting.
3: I know, but within a, in a few days I felt so much better and it actually can lower your blood pressure if it's high um, it can help you lose weight I mean not a lot but it can help and um, it just overall improves your immune system as well
2: huh now do you get that in a in a multiple or do you have to get specifically a vitamin D
3: well most multiple vitamins have vitamin D but not enough um, you know usually most people need at least a thousand international units some people need more um, but again it's, you know you need to get your level checked to see how much you need some people I put on prescription vitamin D, and that's 50,000 units, and wow. I do that once a week.
2: Now, is that gender-specific in any way? or?
3: No, I see a lot of men with it who are low, too. And and then it, it's actually co- low levels are correlated with prostate cancer um, and early mortality, as well as just cancers in general. So that's why it's really important to know what your vitamin D level is and make sure it's adequate,
2: Wow. whether
3: whether you're a man or a woman.
2: And any I'd other? say
3: most of the men are low.
2: That's well. That's vital information. Any other? I, I, I'm, I'm looking at actually the chapter on vitamins and nutrients. Any anything else that really stands out that, that especially for for both uh, genders that, that people should know? Something maybe a little secret. Some of these I don't. Some of these I know, um, you know, well. But others I had not come across before. Um, so anything maybe a little secret? I mean, that's certainly valuable information about vitamin D. I had not heard that before.
3: Well, you know, um, people in India don't have a high incidence of Alzheimer's disease, and they think it's probably because of the turmeric, the, you know, the curry in the food. Right. And so um, there's some theories about whether uh, turmeric actually may help prevent Alzheimer's. It also is a great anti-inflammatory, and there's actually a supplement that I actually give a fair amount of men the supplement. It's called Ziflamind. Zyflamend. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's great if you have arthritis. It works like uh, similar to Celebrex, but without the um, side effects. And it has been found to help prevent prostate cancer. Wow. Yeah.
2: Well, that uh, is very important.
3: Yeah. So that's I'm just. I'm just delighted.
1: Thing. I'm delighted to hear about turmeric and uh, and curry. I'm a, I'm a big fan.
3: Oh, good. Well, and that's something you can get in your diet. Uh, But they think that that is why um, they have less Alzheimer's in India, and it's a great anti-inflammatory anyway. So that would be another one. And fish oil is one of those things that is so good for you. Even the American Heart Association recommends fish oil to help with um, lowering your triglycerides. It helps with overall heart health, and it's really good for the brain. And it's great for your joints. I have a lot of people with achy joints, and once they start taking the fish oil, they feel a lot better.
2: Guess who we give fish oil to? Your dog. Our old cat.
3: Oh, it's great for pets. Oh, but the tip with dogs is, my vet told me, you can't give them the capsules because the transit time through their gut is so quick. You actually have to give them the oil in a teaspoon.
2: We have or, to do you know, that with the in their cat food. too. Yeah. We have to break up the capsules. And exactly. And
3: I know, it's disgusting. Ew. But they love it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I always wonder what part of the fish that came from. Picture some guy sitting there squeezing fish till the oil drips out. Yum.
1: And squeezing him into those uh, those little capsules by hand, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Now, I I have a general question. How, where where the whole, um, um what, what 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 I'm sorry. What did you call the discipline that you studied? That's the combination of the two. Oh,
3: integrative medicine.
2: Yes. What a great word. Where where that always falls apart, uh, I mean, at least you know, in in um, uh, academic terms, is you know the provability. You know, we're supposed to be in science; it's all supposed to be uh, you know testing and uh, cause and effect, and uh, you know you're 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 supposed to be able to test your hypothesis and, and see what happens. How where are we in that process? I know I know it's been, been Certainly has been begun. Uh, you know mm-hmm. that, that people are are doing studies using these various supplements and the herbs and whatnot. Uh, and and you know they're finding some uh, negative consequences. You know some of these have whoa, don't no, You know don't take a lot of that anymore. That sounds right. so good. Like vitamin E, even for example, used to be man right. take all you can get, and now they're saying no. You know you, you take moderate doses, and uh, I can't remember what the downside was. It was pretty severe. Well, with vitamin
3: much. E, I mean, the, the studies studied a type of vitamin E, alpha tocopherol. They weren't studying the natural mix of vitamin E. Also, they were mostly observational studies on vitamin E, and they had, at one study, found there was a higher mortality in the group taking vitamin E. But they didn't know why they were taking vitamin E to begin with. <laughs> so the question is when people are getting close to death, do they take more vitamins? Or uh. when they're sicker, do they take more vitamins? Right. It wasn't like a clinical trial. It says they noticed that they, the people who died you know, earlier were on vitamin E, but why were they taking the vitamin E? Maybe they thought it was going to help them.
2: Because correlation is not causation.
3: Right. So that's a big question mark <laughs> that I have. And the type of vitamin E is also a big question mark, which is the problem with a lot of the studies on these herbs and supplements. Because you can take a piece of a flower, or you can take the whole flower, and that changes everything. Right. But it would still be called echinacea.
2: And you know, what are your so thoughts on that one, by the way? I used that quite a bit for for several years, and then I realized you shouldn't use it all the time because you're exactly. you're you're um you're you're revving up your system you know to top gear all the time and eventually it wears out
3: um They found that is good for helping shorten a cold uh if you take it at the time you're having the cold, but to take it every day. Every you know of the year is not a good thing because it can actually backfire.
2: Right, because you're so, overloading it. Your right, system.
3: so it's not a good thing to take you know on a regular basis, but you can take it when you have a cold.
2: So like a zinc type right.
3: thing. Right, exactly.
2: And and back to I mentioned homeopathy. Does that make sense to you intellectually? And, and where do you stand on that?
3: Well, you know, in well, homeopathy um, is is an interesting field, um, and, and I've seen it work. Why it works, I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. That's, what's called, the, that's
2: what my ear, nose, and throat guy said. It really seems to work. Why? We don't know. Because, well, I mean, it just doesn't seem to make that much sense, you know. I no, mean, they, in, uh, that uh, you know, a tiny amount of something, right. you know. It's uh, a
3: memory of something. Yeah. It's called the law of similars. I mean, it's like the memory of something will help you react to the thing you're trying to fight.
2: Well, I guess that's what uh, you know. Inoculation, the theory is there, but right. but but that's a you know higher dose. Uh, I
3: know. I I don't understand it, but I know it works. <laughs> so you think it
2: works in general, or you found it kind of for for specific things? Specific... For specific
3: things. It works for colds. You know, it works for all the little stuff. I would never go to a homeopath if I had spinal meningitis. <laughs>
2: You know okay. that kind of, I'll remember that
3: I mean, that's not where I go um you know, it works for things like that. um, I actually have sent um pe- parents of kids with uh, behavior issues a d d and um autism or asperger's to a uh, a homeopath who actually puts little remedies together that seem to help. huh, it's amazing, So I don't know
2: it works what do you think about
3: a dog it? really? <laughs> yeah. There's a vet who does homeopathy here, and it worked on her. How funny. Yeah. Well, I
2: guess it makes sense, you know. An organism's an organism. Right. And there are probably more similarities than not. What do you think about acupuncture? I
3: think acupuncture is wonderful. Um, and that's one where there's actually been a fair amount of research, and even the National Institute of Health um, says that acupuncture may be a really good thing to use in patients with cancer or undergoing chemotherapy because it helps with the nausea related to chemotherapy. So my cancer patients who are having treatments uh, will get them acupuncture right before the treatment, and it makes a huge difference. Most of them don't need the medication for nausea. They feel better afterwards um, and have a lot more energy. So acupuncture is one of those things that's good for so many things. Huh. But it wants, like any, anything else, you need to find a good acupuncturist because it's variable depending on who you use.
2: And what, what do you see as, what's the underlying science that makes that work?
3: Oh, that's a really interesting one. Um, it opens up energy channels in the body. There's a guy in, uh, at UC Davis, a physician, a radiologist. He was uh, Chinese-American, went over to China, hurt his back. Someone said, why don't you get acupuncture, which he did. And he, like, couldn't figure out why it worked. It bothered him that it worked, and he couldn't figure out why. So he came home and started doing studies on it. And he did a study using functional MRI where you can actually see what's going on in the brain at the time it's happening. And he got an acupuncturist to hit a certain point that corresponded to the part on the brain, say it was the ocular ocular area. And as the acupuncturist hit that spot, that part of the brain actually lit up. And as the acupuncturist got further from that acupuncture point, it lit up less and less and less. And so it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. How it works that way, and how they figured that out three thousand years ago, I have no idea.
2: Maybe. But it works. And I,
3: I have you ever had acupuncture?
2: I have not. I've had acupressure.
3: Well, after you have acupuncture, you feel really good for like several days afterwards. It boosts your endorphins.
2: Well, we all want our endorphins. I boosted. know.
3: It's a good
2: thing. <laughs> 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 well, we've all. We've talked,
1: about a, we've talked about a lot of the, the subjects that are covered in this book, and, of course, there's there's lots more that we didn't even get close to, but I guess we we tried to focus on, uh, on the things that are more your specialty that we couldn't get out of your co-writers. Right. Well,
3: there's so <laughs> much in the book. I mean, we really cover things from head to toe, so, you know. Literally. function. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Memory issues. Um, You know, you name it, we've got it in there. Heart,
2: lungs, GI tract, uterus. How to care for my uterus. (laughs)
3: It's good. You should read it.
2: The urinary (laughs) tract, muscles, joints, and bones, skin. I mean, like you say, it is literally head to toe inside and out.
3: Exactly. And we give lots of tips, tips that you might not get, you know, from your regular doctor who doesn't have time to give them to you. So. There's conversations in there between Janet and myself, and we don't always agree on everything. So it's kind of I think it's fun to read, seeing people's different different opinions.
2: Well, it really is, and there's so much in there that we've you know we we sort of just really scratched the surface, even though we've talked to both of you for a total of about an hour. It's pretty amazing. It shows you shows you how pregnant how pregnant with meaning is the book. Exactly.
1: Well, the website is smartwomanshealth.com. That's a singular woman possessive, smartwomanshealth.com. And the book is The Smart Woman's Guide to Midlife and Beyond, uh, A No-Nonsense Approach to Staying Healthy After 50. It's available now, and if you hurry, you can probably
2: have it in time for her Christmas. Uh, thanks for talking with us tonight, Robin.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: Really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, I did too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. Well, BC Radio Live is a production
1: of blogcritics.org and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, though not for the next two weeks. Uh, With Eric, I'm Philip. Uh, There may be nothing on earth more chaotic than an emergency room. It's the setting for many television shows and also the subject of a book called Something for the Pain, One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the ER by Dr. Paul Austin. Uh, a good website is paulethanaustin.com. That's P-A-U-L-E-T-H-A-N-A-U-S-T-I-N.com. And the doctor is here to talk with us about his book right now. Welcome to the show, Paul.
0: Thank you.
2: It's good to be here. Wow, this is uh, it, this is really powerful stuff. It's, it's an interesting range we're covering tonight. We kind of have the very broad kind of cradle-to-grave um, you know more more preventive than anything more proactive than anything on on the, the for the first book you know the 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 guide to things and then here you are having to deal with extremely intense uh, situations you know day after day you're seeing the you're seeing the the extremities of life uh, and and wow you really i, I actually ended up Reading, uh, I, I always, one of these days I'm going to read a whole book, but uh, no, I read, I read a few chapters, and you're an excellent writer, and it's really powerful stuff. And man, I just, you know, I, I can't imagine being, uh, myself being able to go through that kind of emotional turmoil. I, I know how I am, and, and, and you really present things well in terms of the dichotomy between uh, staying removed, keeping an emotional distance. Staying detached, keeping your you know your wits about you. Uh, in, in theory, those all go together. And then the o- other side of it being emotional involvement and, and caring and being you know have, having all your your bedside manner intact. And man, what a what a horrific line to have to walk. I mean, I, I have no. De- I, I totally understand how it could have caused you you know difficulty and pain. Yeah, it's a, it's an
0: interesting um, it's an interesting um, challenge that the first oh gosh residency training gets you to the point that you should pretty much be able to handle most of the emergencies that come through, and um, but there's still a learning curve um, that you have to um, to to get through, and so the for the first five or six years after training. Uh, I, I was pretty totally focused on not making a mistake that would hurt someone, uh, and just like the science of emergency medicine, or just trying to, to to get the diagnostic stuff straight and 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 figuring out what was wrong and figuring out how to fix it. But then once you kind of get the hang of it. The, there's a, a, another layer of complexity, which is is how to retain one's humanity in in the presence of that much suffering, and and that's kind of what this book's about.
2: Yeah, and it's not even just the typical suffering that that more or less all doctors deal with, or most doctors anyway. Uh, you know, it's severe suffering, kind of all the time.
0: Yeah, it's it, it can be, and in, and in, uh, it's. We see people who either have nowhere else to go, and that they have a problem that that many of us would not necessarily consider an emergency, but they just don't have anybody who cares about them, so they come to the ER. Um, and, and then there are people who come in, in with, with significant emergencies, whether it's like a heart attack, or they've been in a situation where they in a car wreck, or, or been shot or something, or a heart attack. Or, or just feeling suicidal, uh, so we see people kind of all along the spectrum of human suffering um, and, and ends up in the ER, and and so there needs to be a at least to be able to sustain uh, a career in in this, or sustain a uh, be able to keep doing the job. You have to figure out how you're going to handle it.
2: And I realize this is the essence. This is what the book is about, and you wrote a whole book about it, but. Uh, can can you put into words how you know what you have arrived at what what method what what place you have arrived at in order to sustain yourself under those yeah. circumstances
0: yeah good question it's um part of the book is about what compassion means and, and i started out in medicine with service to to other, to other people being important and, and, and um, uh, demonstrating compassion was very, very important to me starting out. And, and I thought that compassion involved emotional proximity. I thought compassion meant caring about people and emotionally being connected with people. And I've come to believe that compassion also is a discipline, it's a practice. It's an action verb. It's uh, taking care of people even if you don't like them, even if they've been disrespectful to the nurses and the docs, even if they've cursed at us or used racial terms against some of our nurses and docs. You still have to, to care about them. Um, so, so that's that's one thing. I think the compassion is a discipline more than a, an emotion, and, and that was a revelation to me. Other thing that I've come to think, and I'm still working on it, I'm still figuring it out, is that sometimes I need to be emotionally present and sometimes I need to be emotionally distant. That um a couple of years ago a, a woman brought a baby in that was blue and dead and not breathing, it came rushing in the ER, they gave the baby to the nurse, and the nurse came running back, said we need a doctor now, room room eleven. So I went in, and here was this pulseless apneic um, baby. Apneic means not breathing. And so the first step is stick a tube in the baby's windpipe and, and kind of puff air into the lungs, and then you stick an IV in the baby. You give the baby fluids. Try to see what rhythm you got. Uh, usually the airway fixes it, uh, but if that doesn't fix the problem, if you don't start getting a pulse back, you, know, you give some emergency medications, and you have to have an intravenous line to do that. Okay, so uh, we've got the baby tube. Uh, nurses are working on a line. They can't get a line, can't get an IV in. The next step is to establish an intraosseous line. That That's a line that goes into the bone of the lower leg. And uh, it turns out that if an IV is um, put into the bone into the bone marrow itself, the fluid gets from the marrow to the um, veins and from the veins in the blood system. Okay, so uh, we've got to... <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, we've got a a tube in the windpipe. The nurses have not been able to get an an IV line. So the next step is to hold the baby's lower leg in in your left hand and with your right hand, jam a needle down through the skin and through the muscle into the bone itself and then hook an IV to it. And it's about the size of a small finishing nail and you just, you feel a crunchy little Pop as it goes in, you just jam it in you got to be careful you don't jam it through the bone throughout the other side of the leg and, and it's a real brutal kind of procedure i mean it's not something you hesitate with it's not something you feel much about it 's not something you think much about. You just pop the line in and move to the next problem and if you hesitate um, you, you don't understand the procedure so um, put a bow line in, got some fluids in, got a pulse back, got a heart rate, got a blood pressure, got, you know, things were, the boat's starting to float. We think we may be able to, to things will, the baby may survive, so it's time to send the baby up to the intensive care unit. Uh, then it was time to go talk to the mother. And that hard edge that I needed to bring forward to jam a needle into a kid's bone would not help me talk with the mom oh. the mom the mom needed a different emotional presence than that so I had to kind of unclench my fists and relax my shoulders and soften my voice uh, and be more gentle and more open and, and let mom have whatever emotional reaction she was going to have and I had to be in the presence of, of this woman's pain and who's guilt who knows what they're feeling they bring in their baby that's not breathing but Excuse me, I'm sorry. The um, so so I, I have decided that the only sustainable and humane and sane response is to open and close my heart like the aperture of a camera fifty times a day. Sometimes I need to close it down and be a hard-edged, directive, clear, unequivocal guy moving things forward.
2: A technician,
0: yeah, and, 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 and a technician who's in control, because these things spin out of control in a hurry. People are yelling and give me this, give me that, and it, it's real chaotic. And, and you need to be in control. You, you need to be a controlling, directive, individual. You know, open to suggestions. You know, like if if someone thinks we're going the wrong direction, y'all yeah, want to hear about it. But it's, it's my job to move things forward in the direction I think they need to go. And, and that's a directive and and controlling. In that moment, that is the most likely thing to help the baby survive. Now, when I go talk to the mom, I, I need to um to be you know less controlling and less directive and more open and more caring and compassionate. So, so I, I think that the bottom line of it is that I need to continue practicing the discipline of opening my heart and closing my heart, and opening my heart and closing my heart, 50 times a day.
2: Wow. That's gotta be really, really hard, or does it become instinctive does it, does it become second nature, or do you have to consciously do that yeah yeah uh, i'm i'm uh, it may become
0: second nature um uh, it's i I'm to sort of the point of, of, of having to kind of be aware of it and having a. Uh, it, it may not be something I think about consciously, but i I need to be aware of it because if I don't. I'll end up the, – the default response is to be a hard-ass. The default response is to be hard-edged, funny, cynical, and uh, uh, competent it, it is what the, the easy thing to do in the ER is. Uh, move things forward, keep a hard face forward, and, and make a joke about someone else's pain. I mean, that, that's the way you get through a shift. But the problem with that is that, that you may hurt someone's feelings who's a patient – you may damage one of my nursing buddies or one of my doctor buddies, and when I bring the attitude home, it's bad for my family. Um, if if you remain emotionally open, you would burst out in tears and not be useful, and those people don't last long in the ER. Those people come work a month or two and figure out, man, I just am not cut out for this, and and they find somewhere else to go. So I, I have to kind of take my own pulse or, or, or take my own temperature or kind of keep track of my own emotional um uh, Porosity uh, to make sure I don't go one way or the other too far.
2: Wow, it's really interesting. How did you decide? And and as I understand, you're fairly—you came to this fairly late. Uh, How did you decide that the ER was where you do want to be, as opposed to other
0: other specialties? Sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, I I was
0: a college dropout. Uh, I was an English major. First, go and go about and uh, dropped out. was a carpenter, worked on a trash truck a while, ended up as a firefighter for the city of High Point, yellow hat, red truck, uh, and um, for five years I was a, a, a firefighter. And then I went back to college and started over and ran out of money and got a job as a nursing assistant in the ER uh, at the University at UNC, Chapel Hill. And so it, I kind of, kind of fell into it or kind of ended up there. Um, the DR docs seemed cooler than the other docs and seemed funnier and seemed happier than a lot of the other specialties. So I ended up kind of um, – it just seemed like a good fit.
2: And how long have you been doing it?
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, I've been out of training about 17 years. and uh, So it was like four years of med school, three years of residency training. And then right at about 15, 17 years I've been out – I spent two years teaching – At a uh, university, teaching interns and residents how to be ER docs, and uh, after two years, quit, and uh, now I'm just an ER doc working my shifts.
2: Huh, and is that? I assume that's after 17 years, where you, where you do want to stay? It's where you feel most comfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm having to cut back on my number of shifts. If I've had a plenty of time off to recuperate, I still love my job. I, I work with the best nurses in the world, ER nurses. Um, are compassionate. They're caring. They don't make a big deal about it. They're just real practical people trying to move, you know, help people move forward uh, through the department and, and trying to help solve problems. So I, I get to work with some of the best people I've ever worked with, and um, the work I do, is, I don't feel like it's trivial. I feel like it's important. So, so I feel like I'm, you know, doing something that's that's good and useful. If I work too many shifts, I, I get real burned out and real cynical and and, and real toxic and and um, so I'm trying to cut back. Uh, but it's a high impact sport. I mean, it's 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 like basketball. I mean, uh, um, it, it, it's like football. I mean, it, it's not.
2: There's a lot of it's, contact. It's, yeah, there is. There is,
0: and so I'm I'm having to cut back some, but, well, but I still enjoy doing it.
2: That absolutely makes sense. I would, I would imagine it sounds, it sounds to me like I'm just guessing. You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. That you like the general aspect of it too. In other words, you're, it's like you're a super intense general practitioner. You get to handle a lot of different things, but in that intense setting, you're not stuck just doing one narrow specialty, one narrow exactly. part of the body. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm kind of
0: a generalist kind of person. A lot of ER docs are, and so uh, you have to know the. Oh, Threats to life of like infancy and and, and uh, for for children and teenagers and old people and young people and uh, males and females. You,
2: you, you do a little bit of all of I Imagine yeah. you really have to stay up on things too, because it is so broad. You got to stay up on all the latest developments.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you also have to have enough ego to run a code. You have to have enough ego, enough ego to to bring order to chaos. But you have to be humble enough to to ask for help. And and if there's something I'm not sure about, I I just call someone and and, and either get some help over the phone or ask them to come in and help me figure it out or just take over if I get in over my head. So it's it's important to have enough ego to to be the only doc on call at night, but enough humility to, to call for help when you need it.
2: Again, walking that <laughs> really, really narrow razor's edge because you know, like you say, you got to be strong enough and, and powerful enough and have the ego that people respect you and trust you and, and uh, rely on you and do what you tell them to do. On the other hand, you don't want them resenting you for all of that, right? Or or
0: and also like in terms of like uh, nursing staff, you don't you. Um, I don't know how many times a, a nurses questioning an order or questioning, um, you know, we write orders like chest x-ray, EKG, you know, we write orders, and it's not like I'm ordering people around, but uh, a nurse will come up and say, uh, are you sure you want so-and-so? I'm like, oh, God, no, no, thank you, thank you. See, so you want to make sure that the nursing staff particularly feels free coming up to you and questioning what you're doing, and and um, and, and, and because of people, humans make mistakes, and um, if if you're too forceful, nursing staff's afraid to come to you and they go ahead and do something to hurt somebody. Um, so see you wanna be open to people questioning you and second guessing you a little bit so you can they can help you catch errors before they hurt somebody.
2: And that brings up something that I just don't think I could deal with and that is how do you handle being human and making mistakes. And when you're a doctor in your position, when you're an ER doctor, when you're a doctor of any kind, but but all the more so in that, in that critical position that you're in with life and death all the time. How, how do you handle it when mistakes are made?
0: Oh, God, it, it's hard. Uh, in the book, Something for the Pain is, is the name of the book, and, and there's a, a chapter in it about um, a guy uh, changed everybody's name in the book. Uh, I called him Mr. Kelly in the book. Uh, that's not his real name. Uh, a man, we'll call Mr. Kelly, came in with chest pain and um, I didn't think he was having a heart attack. His EKG was okay. His enzymes were okay. Uh, He was young enough to where his risk factors weren't that high. He was a smoker. I think he did have a family history. I thought, let's be on the safe side and admit him just to be sure, and uh, admit him to the hospital and and repeat his tests and in the morning, send him home, or or if he was having a heart attack, treat him. But uh, I think he probably wasn't having a heart attack, but I thought the safest thing to do would be to admit him. Uh, Long story short, I was convinced to send him home i got talked into letting him go home and he i sent him home and uh, the next day at work uh, one of our buddies said paul do you remember mr kelly i said oh god what about him came back in cardiac arrest the guy came back dead and he stayed dead i mean they worked the code for like 30 minutes and called it because it was the guy was just dead and oh uh, i felt terrible i was just devastated because i knew i should have admitted him i mean it, it was just um, and there was no way I could get out from under it. I mean, I didn't know if it was uh, just a medical error. Did it count, like, as an ethical error? Did it count as a sin? Had I let someone die that I had been talked into a stupid idea knowing better, and better and, and I made the wrong decision? I mean, it was, it was devastating. Uh, I talked with my wife, talked with my dad, talked with a minister, and it ended up – I ended up coming to decide that I owed his wife an apology. And a couple days after uh, the guy died, uh, I I called his wife and said, this is Paul Austin. I'm I'm the ER doctor that took care of your husband the first time he came in. And I just called to tell you I'm I'm, I'm sorry that he died. And um, there was just silence on my phone. And, um, she didn't say anything, and so I said, if there's any uh, any questions you have, or, yeah, i got a question. Why'd you send him home? Well, I, I, I thought he would be okay, and I'm, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And I waited, and it was quiet. So if you have anything else that you want to say, or I don't think I have anything else to say to you. Uh, you know, I gave her my phone number and, and, and told her that, you know, if she or her kids, I had adult children, if, if you or your your kids have questions, please call me at home. And I, w- you know, wanting someone to say I forgive you after that big a mistake is wanting a lot. I mean, I, if I was in her position, I don't think I would tell the doctor, "Well, you did your best," or "Well, thanks for trying." I mean, that's That's that would have been asking for more than than most people, or more than I would anyway, be willing to give. But I'm hoping that at least at one level she registered that I had done my best and I had valued her husband, and that I'm human, made a mistake. Um, and from that. Event, the only way I could keep practicing emergency medicine, knowing that I'm at risk for making another mistake and hurting someone else, is I pay more attention to the family's nonverbals. Well, her nonverbals during the visit were real. She had her hands clenched, her legs crossed. She didn't make a lot of eye contact. She was clearly uncomfortable with with the idea of him going home. Didn't say anything, but was uncomfortable with the idea. And, and now, if a family member looks uncomfortable, I just say, you know, you look uncomfortable. Your your shoulders are all tense, and your arms are crossed. And, and are, are you okay with this plan? And sometimes they say, oh, I'm fine. Well, I'm just nervous about. It. I think he's fine. I think you're right. He can go home. Uh, or they may say, no, doctor, I don't want to take him home because he he never comes to the doctor. He's complaining. He's really hurting. So I, I've I've taken away from that. Uh, I elicit more readily. Um, the, the family's input in, in into the, the plans that we're making, but yeah, it's hard i mean I, I still feel bad about that and and there's nothing I can do to change the decision I made or or its its consequences but um yeah that, that story's in the book and it, it was um it was a a painful thing,
2: well clearly, and you tell the story boy your your emotions feel still feel real and 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 still feel raw to a certain extent so I'm, i i guess it's just something you don't ever completely get over you you learn to to deal with it you learn to well it sounds like you did take away some practical knowledge mm-hmm. from it and and i'm sure that that you know helps assuage it a little bit to know that you know you you, you gained something you've been able to use since in in working with other people but yeah, I just man, um I I have nothing but admiration um for you and, and for all the doctors who who somehow are you know, are who who don't turn completely cold and don't turn off their emotions on the one hand, uh and you know, but who who figure out how to, to live with it and I guess ultimately I mean what I'm guessing is you, you have to look at hey, I'm doing a lot more good than harm, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm doing good every day. I'm helping people every single day. It's important stuff. I'm human. Occasionally, something's going to happen. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm, I, I, I'm again, I'm, I am i again i am i do not want to put words in your mouth, but that, that's what I've taken away of, you know, how you deal with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, oh,
2: my, all. Not all. Exactly,
0: and, and my success rates are like, in the book—they're more problems. Uh, there's some happy stories in the book, but the uh, the things I found myself wanting to write about were the things that hurt me or perplexed me. And um, uh, figuring out that someone's having a heart attack and, and treating them well is fun, but it's not burdensome. Or like if someone comes in with a severe, you know, extraordinarily bad back pain—they never had back pain before. They're like 65 years old. That's not a torn muscle. That's not back pain until you're 100% sure. The thing you have to worry about is a ER is, is that the aorta uh, having a weak place in it um, and, and tearing out and leaking uh, an abdominal aneurysm. Um, and when you pick one of those up, you feel good. You know, where some kid's been shot in the neck and the, uh, the there's a blood clot that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger on the outside of his neck and it's pushing his windpipe, uh uh on the inside, and and you stick a tube down his lungs and save his life. You know, all all that stuff is great, but it doesn't bug you much. And so I I wasn't compelled to write many of those stories um, because there wasn't anything emotional to work through. And so so a lot of the stories in the book are are about cases that were um, problematic, and, and I had to kind of come to terms with them. But yeah, most of the time, most shifts you go through, and you just help a bunch of people, and um, I a fair number of them tell them thank you, tell me thank you, and and they appreciate the uh, care I give them, and, and and so it's it's good.
1: Well, the book is called Something for the Pain: One Doctor's Account of Life and Death in the ER, and we've certainly uh, gotten some some stories tonight that that certainly let you know that uh, the author is a. Uh, it's an excellent speaker, and therefore, uh, one would presume an excellent writer. I haven't had a chance to read the book myself yet, though. Uh, the book is available right now, and thank you very much for talking with us tonight and sharing those stories, Paul.
0: It's my pleasure.
2: Yeah, so really have- really powerful stuff, and, and uh, as I said, from... from- the chapters I read. You're he he you are he you <laughs> are uh, an exceptional writer as well, and you're really really uh, a wonderful human being. I want to say that.
0: Well, I, I appreciate this chance to
2: talk with you. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks a lot.
0: Well,
1: we've reached the end of the show for the week, and in fact, uh, owing to the schedule, the end of the show for this year, two thousand eight. So please join us again, January seventh, two thousand nine. That'll be um, our First show, the first Wednesday of the year. Uh, thanks again to uh, Paul Austin and also to Robin Miller from earlier in the show. A couple of doctors talking with us tonight, and of course, as always, uh, thank you, Eric, for doing most of the work of hosting the show. Especially on nights like tonight, it uh, it turns out I've done almost nothing.
2: <laughs> uh, I would never say that, Philip. <laughs> Well, I, I would say
1: tonight I kind of kicked back. I uh, I talked with uh, actually your wife and daughter in the chat room as well as a uh, a few other people who dropped in, and uh, I uh, I I really I, I was quite impressed by uh, Dr. Austin's stories. I'm not I'm not sure if I'm up for a book like that I, uh, around Christmas time though. I got to tell you, maybe more serious, but I'm ready for.
2: It's pr- <laughs> it's powerful stuff. Yeah, I mean it is. I I, I was real sincere about. You know, wow. The the fact that he's able to to be as you know emotionally open and and you know quote unquote normal a person uh, under those circumstances and to have done it for all this time and you know I mean it really is remarkable. He's able to blend those and and that he's developed this technique of you know literally turning his heart on and off. What a, what a powerful metaphor that was. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, one does wonder if you're not, you know, even though not all of us are forced to uh, adopt that sort of, uh, let's say, survival method, you're working in an ER full-time, it, it is interesting to think, uh, you know, how trying to take emotion out of the equation might help us in other parts of life. Anyway, uh, I'm Philip Lynn uh, my co-host is Eric Olson, this has been BC Radio Live. Uh, we do broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us uh, live to participate in the chat room, watch the live video feed. Uh, if you miss uh, the live broadcast, audio archives are always available online. In fact, you can listen to every show we've ever done. Uh, or you can subscribe to the podcast and have BC Radio Live delivered to you automatically each and every week. So until next year, aloha.